0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Impact of the Bible. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Man's Search for Meaning.
1: I've been exploring the impact of the Bible, and in some ways what I'm speaking about today is at the heart of the most prominent concern of every person. It's in our restless search for meaning. No one can be satisfied in living a life without a search for meaning. Of course, it's possible in the short term to give up on the search for meaning and immerse ourselves in pleasure, or in making money, or in finding love. But even the love between a man and a woman is eventually dissipated when that relationship is devoid of something that's bigger than themselves. It's called meaning. I would argue that the greatest cause of melancholy or sadness or even lapse into despair is that we're not sure what life is for or what purpose there is in our existence. We need hope, we need purpose. We need something secure to tell us what we're about. It's about something grand. Of course, as you and I know, there's a dark side to all of that. The history of warfare, the building of empires, it's related to this. Empire builders want to believe that there's indeed something that's so much bigger than themselves, and so they sacrifice all there is to get this sense that what they're all about is greater than themselves. And it's about this, that madmen with illusions of grandeur, when they lead nations, plunge them into war, resulting in untold sufferings. Please remember that it was Adolf Hitler who said that he was building the Third Reich and it would last a thousand years. And as we know, thankfully, it only lasted a decade. But what a decade and what a scar of horror that is left on the human race. That's what I mean when I say there's a dark side to our search for meaning. You know, others search for the idea that they're about something greater themselves, you know, in more benign ways and sometimes in even positive ways. A man or woman might build a business that brings good to the human race and provides many jobs. Someone might climb Mount Everest in order to conquer something that looks greater than themselves. And the idea behind so much of this is simple. We know that life is short. And the idea that we should die without having left anything behind. The idea that we should not be remembered. That it wouldn't make a difference at all that we've been here. That's so difficult to embrace. Staring at emptiness, we shudder and long for something, anything that would make our lives significant. Now, before I get to the impact on the Bible, on this, let's have a look, shall we, at the dominant ideas of our contemporary culture. And here I want to go no further than to look at the impact of the theory of evolution. And just to be clear, I make a distinction between the discussion of the age of the earth and the theory of evolution. Regardless of how old the earth is, It's not something I wish to discuss here, but the idea that all that is came into being through random, purposeless chance, that there is no intelligent design that stands behind the wonders of the earth, is what is taught in all public schools. Philip Johnson said it well when he said that the literature of Darwinism is full of anti-theistic conclusions, such as that the universe was not designed and has no purpose, and that we humans are the product of blind natural processes and that care nothing about us. And what's more, these statements are not presented as personal opinions, but as the logical implications of evolutionary science," end quote. But Johnson's still not done. He says that Darwinism is presented with religious zeal, as Darwinists try to evangelize the world. And furthermore, those that refuse to believe are treated much in the same way as the medieval church would have treated a heretic. They're thrown out of universities and shunned and ridiculed. Now I could stop here and say so much more, and quite frankly, more needs to be said. One of the often overlooked facts is that the fossil record does not support the Darwinian model. Again, let me quote Philip Johnson's important book, Darwin on Trial. Johnson says the single greatest problem which the fossil record poses for Darwinism is the Cambrian explosion. So let me stop here, if you're not familiar with that. The Cambrian explosion shows us that life didn't appear gradually, going from lower forms of life and then slowly, through a period of mutations, gradually evolve to higher life forms. Rather, life appears without an evolutionary ancestor at all. Even the atheist Richard Dawkins admits this when he said, it is as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Yep, and he's right. The Darwinian tree in which all life comes from a single ancestor, as we have all seen in our science textbooks, is not found in the fossil record at all. There were no and are no intermediate forms. Now, I'm getting way off track. The real issue I want to address is that we went to school and we learned that our lives are unplanned, that there was no loving divine hand, that we are the product of chance, and that when we disappear, there'll be no one to watch and no one to care and no meaning attached to it. Is it any wonder why so many people struggle with despair? Now, let's get to the Bible narrative. The Bible starts with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, or as Psalm 19, verse 1 states so clearly, the heavens declare the glory of God. But I'm not making my case today regarding what the Bible actually says about creation, but what it says about meaning and purpose. However, the reality of creation and the reality of purpose, those concepts overlap. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. The Bible starts by affirming that God created all things, and then in verse 2 of chapter 1, the Bible says that the earth was at one point in time formless and void, or a a howling wasteland on which nothing could live, or a purposeless void. And then in six successive days, and here, in order to avoid controversy, let's not discuss the length of each day, but rather that on six days, God speaks and its so. What's fascinating about the language of Genesis 1 is, of course, that God speaks and whatever it is that he says comes to be. But also interesting is how in six successive days, God imposes purpose onto his creation. Yeah, you heard me right. God imposed on the earth purpose, meaning. But what is that meaning? As we read Genesis 1, a pattern emerges. God first speaks and light appears on the earth. Then he creates a separation between sea and sky. Then he creates conditions which allow the earth to sprout vegetation. Then the lights in the sky appear clearly, the sun and the moon, in such a way that they are signs for seasons and keeping track of the year. Then he creates fish and birds and then land animals and then man appears last. You know, what's fascinating is at the end of each day, God declares the worth of what he's doing. It's not enough that God would speak and it should occur, but rather that God would make a pronouncement of worth at the end of each day. God says, it is good. Now, the reader might ask, good for what? That's to say, you know, when a house builder builds a house and then completes each stage along the way, he might say, it is good. That is, when he builds the frame of the house and pronounces that word good. He would mean that it's good for supporting the structure of the entire house. Walls, rooms can now be built because the previous stage was done well. And when the house builder adds wiring and plumbing, a roof and windows and so forth, each stage which is done well is pronounced good because he has an end goal in mind. And in the case of a house, the builder understands that the goodness of the house that he is building is so that the house will become a home for a family. They're going to live there. Children will grow up there. When it becomes cold and it rains or snows, the house will be a refuge and allow them to enjoy life. So to say something is good means that we have an understanding as to what it's good for. And when God creates the earth, he's pronouncing everything good, and the readers invited to search through the text. Why is God making this? And the answer to that question isn't hard to find. The world that God is making is good for a man and a woman, who are said to be very good. I mean, think of it this way. God's building a stage in which the human race will be given center stage. The world is a stage and humankind will play a central role. It's not as we often hear today, that the world is good but human beings are destroying it. Rather, the planet exists for us. It was made to be our home. But still we have one more question to answer. If in pronouncing the world good, God meant that it was good for man, as male and female, to occupy center stage, what then is man good for? And that's the key to the Bible story. I've already said in a previous discussion that we were created in the image of God and as such are given value. But I want to focus specifically on purpose. Why did God create man as male and female? What was the purpose? And that's so important. The Bible tells every human being the purpose for their existence and stop and think about that. You know, we've been discussing the impact of the Bible, and on this point, it's hard to overestimate what the Bible says. For every person who struggles with feelings of inferiority or meaninglessness, or has forgotten who they are, the Bible gives the answer. Indeed, the Bible is the solution to man's search for meaning.
0: Back to the Bible Canada recently wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022. We were so excited to resume this event this year, and as usual, it proved to be a trip of a lifetime for those who attended. Witnessing firsthand the sites and locations where Jesus walked and taught is a surreal experience that can't help but make a profound impression on your walk in the Word. One guest wrote, my trip to Israel has tremendously impacted my faith journey by experiencing the Holy Land firsthand, accompanied by competent archeological, theological, and historical teaching, all made possible by expert planning. We're so honored and privileged to be able to host this experience for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're also so excited to announce the Israel Experience 2023 is now in its final stages of planning and information can be found visiting backtothebible.ca or calling 1-800-663-2425.
1: When describing what we were created for, we need to start with the most basic biblical concept. We were created for God. The Westminster Catechism tries to capture the essence of our purpose. You know, a catechism is a series of questions that a person is asked and they're called upon to memorize the answers. And so according to the drafters of the Westminster Catechism, the first and foremost question was the question, what is the chief end of man? You know, it's old English. We might say, what is the number one reason why people are created? Or what's the number one reason you were created? What's your purpose in life? And to that, the Catechism teaches the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let's put that into contemporary language. The number one purpose for your life is to make much of God and be completely satisfied in him. Okay, but does the Bible teach that? Well, indeed it does. And not just once, but over and over again. So let's start with something that has been called the Shema. Shema is simply a Hebrew word for "here." And that word is a very important word. It it signifies something you're supposed to hear, but also pay attention to and apply to your life. So Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 then became a part of the worship of ancient Israel. And they would repeat the words of Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, you might wonder then how a command is the reason for our existence or the thing that gives us purpose and meaning. But this command was so important that the Bible makes it very plain. It's a foundation stone upon which the education of the next generation was based. Right after commanding us to love God with heart, soul, and strength, Deuteronomy then adds, "...and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children." And shall talk of them when they sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You know, Jesus himself repeated that very theme in his own teaching, Matthew 22, 35 to 38. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the greatest command in the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. it's interesting as we read through the Bible to find how often that theme comes up when the authors of the Bible express their own reasons for existing. Psalm 42, 1-2 As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or how about Psalm 63, 1-3 O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. One more, Psalm seventy-three twenty-five to 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I mean, you think about that. If all the things that people want out of life says this psalmist, I'd gladly forgo everything but for one thing. There's nothing I desire but you. And so here's a plain teaching of scripture. Our purpose in life is bound up in nurturing and urging on a passionate love and desire for God. We exist for that very thing. Whenever people desire something else, or to put it into our language, nurture something other than the desire for God, eventually they end up in folly and meaninglessness. That's because, says the Bible, every other pathway leads to a dead end, but the pathway towards God leads to eternal life. Now, step back for a moment and think about that. Of all the living creatures that inhabit our planet, human beings are the only ones that worship. You know, I know that contemporary culture wants to build a case that you can have a full and rich, meaningful life outside of God. But what is the result? It's people striving in one direction and the other to find happiness and life satisfaction. They don't have it. The Bible communicates that you've been made for God and that your heart will be restless and agitated and wounded and depressed and left full of unfulfilled longings until you find your purpose in God. You see what the Bible has done. It's not only told you what you were created for, but it tells you how to get there. The Bible tells us both how it is that humanity became alienated from God and how through Jesus we can be reconciled to him. Let me say it again. If you seek to find meaning in anything, but do not start with God and develop a holy longing for relationship with him, a relationship premised on forgiveness of sins and worship and putting aside all self-motives and surrender to his purpose, if you lack that thing, you'll never find purpose for your life and for your creation. Find God in Jesus. Make your search for God more important than your daily bread, and you'll know purpose. Now, there's a second purpose that comes to us as, as the one that Jesus mentions next. Let's remind ourselves of it. And read the passage again. It was Matthew twenty-two thirty-five to 39. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the fact that neighbor love follows love for God shouldn't be missed. If we turn the order around, and we make neighbor love as our first priority, things quickly degenerate into meaninglessness. Here I mean that if neighbor love is first, then the question of who is my neighbor becomes paramount. And so, for instance, when you think of it, you know, if you had lived in Nazi Germany during the Second World War, you might have concluded that the Gestapo or the SS or the guards that oversaw the Jewish extermination camps were your neighbor, but were they? Indeed, I would think, that doing good to those conducting extermination of people is callously uncaring for the victims. You see what I'm getting at? The world is sinful. It's filled with people who do evil. And in the real world, evil people commit unspeakable evil against others. And the question of who is my neighbor is the question of whom I should love as myself. But let me push it even further. On what basis are we make these judgments? I say this because it's a natural tendency in all of us to love people like ourselves and to neglect people outside of our circles. Jesus spoke to that, Matthew 546 to 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the point I'm trying to make is that the second command to love our neighbor needs definition. It's no virtue at all, says Jesus, to love those people in your circles and neglect others. And here the Bible gives definition. Jesus told a parable of a man going from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he came upon a man on the road who was attacked by bandits, robbed, left bleeding, and potentially dying. Others passed him by, but a Samaritan came along, picked him up, provided what he needed. That story, the story of the good Samaritan, was the answer to the question, and just who is my neighbor? And it turns out, according to Jesus and the Bible, your neighbor is the person you come upon who is in need. And the Bible sets the stage for neighbor love, upon which is built the meaning and purpose for our lives. We first encounter God, for we've been created to know and love him. Then we seek to bring the gospel of Jesus to the world. But we can't stop just there. According to Romans, even if our enemy is hungry, we're to feed him. And also if he's thirsty, we're to give him something to drink. The Bible has inspired Christian mission to bring hospitals and education and sustainable agriculture and a host of other benefits around the world. See, in Genesis, Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? And the rest of the Bible answers that question. Oh, yes, you are so here's the Bible lesson. Love for God and love for neighbor is your calling. You're not a lump of meat and a chemistry set. Of course, there's so much more to what I've said, but the point is this. Only the Bible answers the question of your search for meaning. Who are you? What is your purpose in life? And how can you be fulfilled? And the answer is, you were made for God. You are made in his name also to act towards others and his creation in a way that's informed by your relationship with God. And on that basis, you're not an accident. You have purpose. Open your Bible. Find out.
0: Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you a question. In your thinking, does does the very theory of evolution do some damage to the value of who we are as God's children?
1: Now, let me try to make a distinction between uh, folks that hold to evolution uh, and those that hold to intelligent design. Uh, evolution is based on a secular model which says everything that exists is a result of a random purposeless chance. And the scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God. They are the product of his meticulous design. And so um, I, I'm not arguing about the age of the earth here. That's another, and it's a separate question. Many people are surprised to hear that. Uh, I think you can hold to a very old earth and just not believe in the evolutionary hypothesis. We believe in design. Thanks, John. And
0: remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Impact of the Bible, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. June is Back to the Bible Canada's fiscal year end. As such, it's a crucial month for the ministry financially. Despite the financial impact of the last couple of years, Back to the Bible Canada has still been able to provide sound Bible teaching and engagement resources, and even produce a new ministry resources, thanks to the loyal support of our listeners. This year, our fiscal year-end target is $409,000. And to help us reach that, several generous ministry supporters have graciously offered to match your donations this month up to $100,000. That means your gift has doubled the impact. We'd be so grateful if you might consider helping us achieve our financial target this fiscal year end. To make your gift today or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.